morning. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to see everybody here today. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. <clears throat> and as you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, next week uh, we will be celebrating Palm Sunday. That means that Easter Sunday is two weeks from today. Um, and traditionally, uh, that is a natural and much easier day to invite someone to attend uh, church with you, whether it be a friend or a neighbor. And um, traditionally speaking, historically speaking, it's much more inclined to accept those invitations and come and to join. And so we have created some um, invitation cards, if you will, uh, that you are welcome to take and to hand out and pass out. Uh, we've also have, um, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, there's an invitation that matches that on there as well that you're welcome to share and invite others. Um, of course, there's no substitute for just sitting down and just talking with somebody about the gospel, um, the things of Christ, but we also want to invite others to church and trying to create easy pathways uh, for that to begin. Now, originally, my plan was to have this Ecclesiastes series all finished up nice and neat, bow tied upon it last week. <laughs> Obviously, that hasn't happened. Uh, we're still in Ecclesiastes today, and if you heard, we we're only in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, but what we're going to do is we're going to, after today, we're going to pause um, Ecclesiastes for, for three weeks. Um, because all my best laid plans have got flipped, turned upside down. And so we're, we're rearranging uh, some things there, and we're going to pause Ecclesiastes. We're going to go into three weeks focused on a very important topic, the resurrection of Christ. Um, and so we're going to be focusing there specifically, like what comes before um, then Easter and then uh, a post um, kind of Easter uh, sermon service as well. So three weeks there. We're going to return to Ecclesiastes then, Lord willing to finish up in three weeks, and eventually make our way into um, and, um, our next extended series, which will be out of the book of Acts. And so we'll be, we'll be heading there together. But as for today, what we have before us is, is simply a, a pretty practical focus on the importance of wisdom. Something we could all use more of, right? Yeah, for anybody who's not nodding their head or saying amen, the answer then is yes. We all need more wisdom. We all need less folly within our lives. The preacher telling us in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, there in verse 13, he says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. And I don't know about you, but like the more that I read that and just kind of read it on it, just take it at face value, it makes me chuckle. Because he's like, I have seen this great example of wisdom on the earth. It's great. It's, it's awesome. And, and it really seemed great to me. And guess what? I want to tell you all about it. <laughs> like He can't wait to tell you what this great example is. So then, of course, the question is, what is this great example, right? Like, what great example has him all excited? And that's where he tells us in verse four, 14. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a, a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. 
Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So what's the preacher telling us here? What's he trying to convey to his listeners? Well, he's telling us, which is our first point today, that wisdom is better than might. That wisdom is better than strength. Providing the imagery of a little city. This little city was just a, was a few men in this city that is surrounded. It's besieged by, by an army of a powerful king. Personally, when, when reading this, I couldn't help but think of the people of Ukraine as I read this. But in saying that, I'm, I'm in no way trying to create a, a, a one-to-one correlation. I'm just saying cities like Mariupol come to mind when I, when I think of this. Or maybe in a historical American context, I think about the Alamo. For those of you who are familiar with the Alamo, maybe beyond just John Wayne imagery, um, there, but the Alamo being besieged by, by a giant army in basically a spot. They're going to fight as hard as they can, but they're in a spot of, of helplessness. But either way, it's by image alone an appearance of an impossibility, a hopeless situation. A great king with this powerful army besieging just a little city that contains just a few men. But then what does the preacher do? He gives us a compare and he gives us a contrast. So started by giving us the imagery of this great king who has this mighty army at his disposal. And then in verse 15, he gives us the, the strength of this little city. What is the strength of this little city? A, a poor, wise man. A poor, wise man, we're told no one even remembered. Well, what did he do? says he delivered the city and how did he do it by the use of wisdom by wisdom he delivered the besieged city now is this a direct correlation or a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ no I don't believe that it is it may or may not even come to your mind when you think of this passage it did come to my mind it, it made me think of Christ and his work upon the cross. How so, you ask, did it make me think of this? Well, again, I, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and how the foolishness of God is wiser than man. It's a verse, it's a passage that we have referenced numerous times throughout this series. In fact, if you would, go ahead and turn with me there. Keep your finger there in Ecclesiastes, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Now, until now, we, verse 25 has primarily been our, our primary reference point, referring to the foolishness of God being wiser than, than man. But I believe it would be helpful, and I pray encouraging to each and every one of us for us to look at what follows in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As it reads, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And to that passage and others like it, we have to give a hearty amen. Praise God for these truths. But oh, how easy it is for us to forget this. I know it is for me to, to overlook, to, to not take this as seriously as I need to on the everyday focus of my mind. How easy it is for us to, to look at what's poor and lowly in this world and join in with the world and considering it weak and in turn look at what's powerful and mighty in this world and to consider it strong we've all done this haven't we look at the things that this world would see as weak and we see them as weak to look at the things that this world would see as strong and we value them and see them as strong we all have been there of course we have but back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 16. And he says, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Some very big words here on the importance of power on the importance of wisdom. Just the imagery alone, again, is that wisdom is better than weapons of war. A statement like that can leave us being like, seriously? Like, you really? Like, weapons of war, wisdom, more, stronger, better than this? Wisdom better than that? And yes, I know that modern weaponry did not exist then. So no, the preacher himself, as he wrote this, was not thinking about a nuclear arsenal. He was not thinking about cluster bombs. But understand this. Understand weapons such as these weren't beyond the knowledge of the Holy Spirit who inspired the preacher's words. They were not beyond the knowledge of the, of the author, our Lord. So I believe the proverb very much still holds true. Wisdom is better than even the strongest weapons of war. How? That's the rightful question, right? How could wisdom be better than those type of weapons? Because any fool can shout, right? Any fool can raise his voice. Any fool can push a button. Any fool can pull a trigger on a gun. Holding that gun, pushing a button, shouting really loud to say, hey, look how strong I am. Look what strength I have. Look what I can do. But friends, it's a wise person who knows when to remain quiet. It's a wise person who knows how to hold her tongue. It's a, no, it's a wise person who knows how to use restraint. I think about the Apostle Peter, not in the definition of restraint, <laughs> 
But I think about the Apostle Peter in the garden. The, the Roman soldiers, the Roman officials came to arrest Jesus. Peter doing what in that moment? His zeal. He went for his blade. He went for his knife, his sword. And he, and he went to what? Chop off and he cut the, the soldier's ear right off, right? Thinking he was stepping up to the fight. But what did Jesus do in that moment? No. That's not how it's going to be. It's not how this is going to work. It's not how this is going to happen. And then Jesus proceeded to, to heal the man's ear. And then was taken off and led to trial by his accusers. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Such silence appearing weak to the watching world. If you're the king, say something, do something. Bring yourself off of the cross. Show us your power. They would mock, they would jeer, they would yell at him. But oh, the wisdom of God. More powerful than any weapon of war. Such wisdom encouraging us to, to look to Jesus. First is our only hope in life and in death. And friends, I ask you this morning, a very simple question. Are you trusting in Christ, looking to Christ as your only hope in life and in death? If not, you are on the path of folly. If you are, praise God, continue to walk the path of wisdom. As that would also encourage us to, to look to Jesus as our example and to follow him. Want to live wisely? There's only one way to do that. We must follow Jesus. Dig deep into his word. See for what it says and then and do it. Trust his promises to be true, no matter how foolish they may appear to the watching world, and to follow Christ no matter the cost. That's wisdom. But then notice the verse 18, how it ends. Yes, it tells us how wisdom is better than weapons of war. But then it says, but one sinner destroys much good. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means, our second point, a little folly outweighs wisdom. A little folly outweighs wisdom. Now, let me be clear on what this means. Not, not at all saying folly outweighs wisdom in importance or even power. That would be a contradiction to everything we just talked about. But think Adam and Eve and their one sin. Or how one sinner destroyed much good. Didn't take a lifetime of sin or multiple sins to separate them or us from God's presence. Bring sin's curse upon all of creation. It took only one. It's the idea of you, you can do a hundred things good. We've all heard this in one form or another. Like you do a hundred things good, do a hundred things well, but then one foolish act, one foolish word can ruin it at all, right? Can bring it all kind of crumbling down. A lifetime of work ruined in a moment. 
want to get more vivid, consider the imagery that the preacher uses in chapter 10, verse 1, of how a dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. That's a gross picture, isn't it? I would like read that again and look at it. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. It's just gross. Like when we begin to think about it, because perfume itself is intended to do what? To smell good, to put off a, a lovely fragrance. But add dead flies to the mix. Well, again, that's just gross. That's not going to be pleasing in any way, shape, or form. And in the same way, a little folly, a little foolishness, a little sin, well, it's just a little, outweighs wisdom and honor. As it can quickly ruin everything you've worked so hard for. A reminder to each and every one of us to be consistently wise in how we live. That's the point of verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Meaning wisdom goes one direction and folly goes another. And no matter how wisely we walk or try to walk, we're going to be continually tempted by what? By folly. Each and every one of us continually tempted by folly. Like we're walking, trying to do the right thing, to live wisely. And what's tempting us in every corner, in every direction? Folly. The foolishness. And it only takes one foolish act to ruin a reputation that we've spent a lifetime working for. Therefore, let us walk the path of wisdom at all times. Being thankful for the grace of God when we don't, but looking to strive to walk the path of wisdom. Pursuing, as Philippians 4.8, you can jot that down in your notes, tells us, pursue whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the path of wisdom. But then verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Meaning a fool will eventually show his true colors. One way or another, the fool is going to show his true colors. How? Because he or she doesn't consistently walk in whatever is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Try as they may, the fool cannot keep silent. Try as they may, they cannot keep silent in terms of their words or their actions. As Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. But the moment a fool's mouth opens, what happens? All doubt is gone. True colors are revealed. And you'll be like, yep, I knew it. That's exactly who he is. I, I knew it all along because when the mouth speaks, the truth comes forth. And sadly, such foolish people often sit in some pretty important positions. But verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, 
Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. Essentially, the, Peter, the preacher is saying, no matter how tense or difficult the situation, keep it cool and let wisdom prevail. Don't give in to folly. Let wisdom prevail. Let your calm demeanor help calm an otherwise tense situation. We've all been in those spots, haven't we? We have the option to, to, to blow our lid, let folly take over, walk out, or like, if I can just stay calm here. If I can be able to be wise with my words, maybe say nothing at all in this moment, that could be the best way to handle the situation. The application here is very broad, but the reminder of the world in which we live. And that number three, folly is set in many high places. Something we're all too familiar with, but still the needed reminder just because someone holds a position of power or a position of authority or a prestigious role, it doesn't make them wise. Just a reminder that foolish people can hold some pretty powerful positions. That's not a shocker, I know, but let's face it. The wisest and best leaders are rarely the ones who are in charge. Why? Because people want Saul, not David. They want Barabbas, not Jesus. But listen and follow along as we read verses 5 through 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Which means what exactly? Remember in verse 13 of chapter 9 how the preacher said, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. The preacher then giving an example of good wisdom extending from a poor man. Wisdom more powerful than any great king or mighty weapons of war, right? But here he says there is an evil. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun as it were error proceeding from the ruler which is what what is this error what is this evil the evil is essentially that this ruler which could be in reference to any number of rulers he or she has made or is making some pretty bad leadership decisions how so it gives us an example by by putting fools in high positions and rich in low places to which some may be inclined to, to hear this and say, well, what's wrong with that? Give the poor guy a shot, right? Let him have a chance. There's nothing wrong with that if the poor guy is the one within the city that we looked at earlier, the wise poor man. You don't want a poor man who's not good with money handling your finances, right? That's but what we looked at here. That's not the point. The point here is if you're picking a team... Well, you're, you're going to pick a team to what? To win, right? If you want to pick a team of players, whether it's a sport or business or life or to lead a country, you want to pick a team that's going to succeed and run a country well. Are you going to pick those who are suited for the task? Yes. Not going to pick those who are not suited for the task, right? 
for one's path of wisdom, one's a path of folly. You want to pick those who are suited for the task. So in this particular case, by putting the rich in a low place and a slave on a horse, while leaving a prince who's an expert on a horse left to walk, I'm just saying that's foolish leadership. That's not using the peace as well. You're not leading well. That's like picking your buddy to run foreign policy, and all he does is have a degree in Xbox. It's like, why are you going to do that for? That's just foolishness. And that's the point. The point isn't about rich or poor or princes or slaves. The point is that it's a great evil to have a leader who continually makes foolish decisions. All it does is hurt those that they lead. And it's an evil still to continually replace one foolish leader with another. But thankfully, thankfully, Christ, our King, has no errors proceeding from him. No folly, only wisdom, only grace. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, telling us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friends, maybe feeling discouraged by the rulers of this world, look to Jesus. Feeling discouraged by policies and things of this world, look to Jesus, who has been bestowed the name above every name and to whom every knee will bow. And remember, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Remember, he alone is our only hope in life and in death. The wisdom of God, Christ Jesus. But now let us also remember that wisdom helps us in so many practical ways on this earth, does it not? Wisdom helps us to succeed and live, right? Does both. Now, living is good. Success is a bonus. But I'll I'll gladly take both. I'm not going to complain about success or living. But verses 8 through 11 providing several wisdom, wisdom nuggets here. And even a bit of levity as we consider them. Let's read through them together starting with verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Now, obviously, this isn't a guarantee, or I hope it's not obvious that it's a guarantee that the one who digs a pit is going to fall into it. It's not. But by digging a pit, for whatever reason you're digging the pit, whether you're just trying to dig a hole or you're going to dig a pit and put a tiger in it or whatever you want to do, if you dig that pit, it makes falling into it a greater what? A greater possibility. Point being, be wise. Be careful. 
you've dug the pit, when you walk around it, be careful. You have a better chance of falling into the pit that you dug than the pit that does not exist. That's simple wisdom, right? Wisdom in how you work. Now to the second part of the verse. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Does this mean any wall you break through, there's going to be a serpent waiting for you on the other side to strike? I hope not. Like, No, that's not the case. But it does remind me, it does remind me of doing some demolition, demo work um, in high school on a home remodel. Now, me saying that one statement right there, for anybody who knows me in this room, Jeremy involved in a home remodel? <laughs> like, you're like, <laughs> but remember, any fool can sling a sledgehammer, right? And we had a group of us friends who had one of the families that we were close to was remodeling one of the oldest homes in our county, a home that had sat vacant for probably decades, and we were taking out a portion of, of an old wall. And when we did, I had, I had my safety goggles on. I had my, my mask because of all the dust. We're all ready to go. And I, I bring back the sledgehammer. And I, I get to sling it through the wall. And the moment we did, what was waiting inside of that wall were a bunch of snakes. And they began to come out of that wall. And you know what I did in that moment when the snakes began to come out of that wall? I took that sledgehammer and I brought it back. And I threw it down, and I ran out the door screaming like a prepubescent little boy. <laughs> like I had to get out. What's the wisdom in this? Be wise. Think of the potential consequences of your actions. There may be things lurking behind a wall that you have no idea that are going to be there. I had no idea that was going to take place may not be a snake behind the wall that's waiting to strike, but the consequences of a foolish decision that's not thought through could be even more costly. Moving on to verse 9. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. It makes sense, right? There's going to be a lot of explanation here. Like, occupational hazards exist so be wise while working if you're going to sling an axe split the log not your leg verse 10 if the iron is blunt and no one does one does not sharpen the edge he must use more strength but wisdom helps one to succeed so a dull sword or a dull knife isn't going to get the job done not as easy anyway. So keep the thing sharp or you're going to pay for it later. Verse 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. What more can I say on that one? Like, honestly. I guess if you're going to be a snake charmer, charm the snake before it bites. Or better yet, just don't be a cha snake charmer. Go get a different job. Like, get a different profession altogether. Either way, in everything we do, whatever the task is, whatever the occupation, use wisdom. It will help you succeed and live. It will help you live as long as along these same lines, point number five. 
a wise mouth will earn us favor. Not a smart mouth, but a wise mouth will earn us favor. Wise words. As we read in verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know how know the way to the city. This is repeating some of what we've already looked at. If the fool remains silent long enough, people will think the fool is actually intelligent. But the moment he opens his mouth, the truth is known. But wise words, wise words will win us favor. Foolish words, on the other hand, those type of words will only get us in trouble. Thus, James 1.19, again, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Listen more. Speak less. And when we do speak, let's speak wisely. Which means, number six, a wise person doesn't curse the king. Which just sounds obvious in that context, right? Or at least it should. If you want to live, don't be cursing the king. But we don't have kings and queens in our country, do we? We live in a democracy where it has become a national pastime to to freely say whatever we want about our leaders, good or bad, and not think twice about it. But let's pick up in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feet is in the prince's feet in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your prince's feet at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Well, there's a lot packed in there for sure. But here's the gist. Woe to you, country, people, land, city, when your king is a child or acts like a child. Essentially, when your king isn't wise. Woe to you if this is the case of your leadership. But happy are you when your your king is the son of nobility. Or when your king or your leader is wise. When he or she walks with integrity and wisdom and maturity. But regardless of our, our thoughts here on this matter. Bad as those thoughts may or may not be regarding leaders. The instruction here is do not curse the king, even in private. As Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. 
And I don't think this silence just applies to our spoken words here. But consider how many foolish and angry uh, curses have been spoken on, on social media for all the world to see. Maybe in a moment of venting and frustration. Have any of those things actually ever changed somebody's mind? Has anyone looked at your snarky comment or somebody else's snarky comment and on, a, on a Facebook post or Instagram or YouTube or whatever it may be? You know, you know what? That fool has a point. I think that I that completely changed my mind on, on this. You're correct. No, the individual who posted it usually comes away feeling better about themselves, saying, ha ha, look what I got my point across. Look what I said. Look what I did. I told them. But a reminder for us to use every form of communication with wisdom, with intentionality. Sometimes less is more. Remember your employers, young people, your future employers, a person of interest are all going to be looking at everything you've ever posted online. Everything. Your children or your future children are going to see a timeline of your life written out for them to see if you have these things. And the less you say, the less chance you have of being seen as a fool. Be wise with your words in any and every context. And as it applies to our leaders, remember, every leader we have is one we must be praying for not cursing. But with all of this, all of this talk of leaders and wisdom, we are wise to remember that this world is not our home and that Christ is our King. And it's He who tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus telling his followers as he sent them out into the world, telling us to be prepared to receive persecution because it's going to come. Be prepared to stand before fools who will look to harm you. It's going to come. So be wise, not foolish. Remain above reproach. Don't tarnish years of, of good work with an impulsive or foolish action. People are going to say mean things about you. They're going to say mean things about your family. You don't walk on stage and smack them in the face. Rather, you turn the other cheek. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And church, may that be our aim. To make the best and most wise use of our time and our words. Letting our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer each and every person. With wisdom, with grace, with love, with patience, with kindness. Because the days are evil. So let's stand out as salt and light in these evil days.
not blend in with foolishness. Let's be wise. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we are so tempted by folly to participate in, to partake in, to walk the path of. But, Lord, I pray that wisdom will embrace us heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, that we will look to Christ, the wisdom of God, as our only hope in life and in death but also as our example to follow. Lord, may we be like Christ. And Lord, when we fail, oh Lord, we have failed and will fail. Let us rest in the grace that is found in Christ. Our hope, our joy, and in whose name we pray.